You're listening to Subconscious Mind Mastery Podcast number 96. This is part two of a three-part series over 95, 96, 97 with Rob Mitchell. Now, Rob Mitchell, as we introduced in number 95, runs OilTradingRoom.com and for almost three decades now has been perfecting systems of how to trade effectively in the markets. But what's most impressive is that with the vast statistical and analytical and computer programming knowledge that he has, he runs his life from within. He's brilliant, he's practical, and he's with us. And so we're going to roll right on in to part two with Rob Mitchell. We're back with Rob Mitchell. Rob, thank you again for staying with us through this series. One thing that I've been amazed in your work is you built systems for almost three decades coming up now to basically put a different eye on the stock market. And your system works amazingly well. So you have to be brilliant. And then at the end of the day, you talk about unconscious processes. You talk about trading by almost learning the rules and then throwing them out. How do you do that? I was first introduced to this uh, concept in uh, acting classes, of all things. And I had some wonderful uh, acting uh, teachers that would have us read things that you, you like the textbooks for the class had absolutely nothing to do with, uh, with acting. Books like The Inner Game of Tennis. It's a book about how uh, dialogue, internal dialogue can be going on in your mind. And it's subtexting the real reality that you're operating on. In no place is this more obvious or the failure to be who you really are than when you've got a, a lens, you know, as an actor, a lens that's, you know, three quarters the size of your head, a foot away from your face, detecting every tiny little movement in your face musculature. And if there is any doubt at any, even the tiniest little level, that you're not genuinely the character. If there's a tiny little eye movement going up to access the line in your, in your memory, rather than delivering it as though it's in the moment, uh, that camera's going to catch it. And so the skill set that an actor um, brings to the film is just remarkable because you have to be the character that you are, which is not who you are. You have to deliver lines that you memorized as though they were completely natural and in the moment. When the other actors speak, you have to listen attentively and be emotionally connected with what's uh, happening in the scene. On and on and on, layers of, you know, from that viewpoint, a film is a lie that tells the truth. Because we all know that a film is not reality. And so there's this concept, suspension of disbelief. You're willing to suspend your disbelief that, you know, Jim Carrey, Ace Ventura, uh, this, you know, absolutely outrageous character is real because it's fun. And then you're willing to abandon the absurdity of it and buy into that reality, which is absurd. <laughs> you know, we're just talking about absurd realities. Right? You're willing to buy into that reality and, and enjoy the story. And so what process of mind allows this to occur? This is crazy, right? And certainly worthy of uh, a deep contemplation about how and why this can even occur with the human mind. And so that set me on a path of, um, of understanding 
the difference between a reality that we're operating in and a real reality. Now, in the case of the acting, you're supposing that the reality of, of being in the world is the real reality and then the acting is fake. But at some level, you'll see performances that are just so genuine that uh, it floors you and you have deep emotional responses to it. So the idea is if that, you know, pseudo reality, quote unquote, uh, can lead to such a profound experience, then what is the real reality? Because a human can entertain any reality you want at any given moment. It's really your choice. And so the question becomes um, within this kind of framework of mind and, and the experience of life is at what level am I operating uh, completely naturally within the context, whether the reality is real or not, that I'm just operating naturally. And what I, the way that an actor is able to do that is you've learned your lines, you've learned to transcend the character, you've done all these things in preparation, but when that camera starts rolling, you throw it all in the garbage and you go out in front of the camera and you have fun. You literally abandon all that because if you don't abandon it, then you're conscious. And if you're conscious, you can't function. You literally become a really horrible actor. And so the division line between between being a profound actor that can transform people's lives and being a lousy actor is just this very fine, thin film. Of, I'm not talking about the film film. I'm just talking about this like subtle shift in, in realities. And so this is kind of like my first introduction to the idea that uh, reality is, you know, whatever you're making of it. But if you are operating at a level of truth within the reality that you are, and if I take this to the scales, we've been, the energy scales we've been talking about, whatever reality you're in, that you're just true to it, then um, you will operate, you, you will be operating optimally. And so that's the general gist of what I mean when I'm talking about operating unconsciously. And so in order to do that, you do just what the actor does. You memorize your lines, you transcend uh, the role that you're playing, you play it fully, and in, in, in that state of mind, you have no doubts or concerns or shortcomings or anything else that's other than just exactly what you are, and you do what you, um, what is given you to do, what you're uh, performing, and you do it. And it might not be uh, perfect in every way, but you'll have moments of absolute magic. And so that's why, and that's what I'm talking about when I'm addressing the idea of getting to a level where you're operating intuitively or from your inspiration. And that's why you can almost call the markets like a sportscaster. I mean, it's amazing. You're sitting there looking at the future, predicting it. A sportscaster reflects on what just took place. You're reflecting on what's about to take place with almost the same degree of accuracy. It's, it's brilliant when I watch you day after day doing this. I absolutely love, and I always have, and I think I learned this from my entrepreneurial father, I've never been comfortable in a place where I know uh, where I know. I, I know that sounds really strange, it's a strange character for me as a family, as a, as a personality trait. But I, um, I'm at my best when I'm on the cusp of unknowing. And this also goes hand in hand with this unconscious uh, concept. Or, but it, it also ties into what we were talking about earlier, 
having to do with, uh, you know, you talk about me quoting scripture or whatever, or, or some level of absolute, absolute reality. To me, it's a meditation of just presently trying to interpret what the participants in the market are trying to do, what their intentions are, and getting your ego out of the way enough to let that information be uh, delivered to you because it's not you. And as you know, we're um, in the trading room uh, conducting uh, experiments. I'm trying to engage other members in, uh, in activities to, I'm hoping, I don't know it's experimental, but I'm hoping to discover the same, that this whole idea that you can know anything, I know that sounds horrible to say that, this whole idea that you can know anything is not really what you need to perform the best. And now any good athlete or great athlete um, knows that they have absolutely no thought while they're doing phenomenal things on the basketball court or on the soccer field. They're just being. And and what did they do? Well, you know, same thing as the actor. They did the work, you know, they got it to the, the muscle memory was just absolutely impeccably in tune with the game and the sport and the, and everything about it. And at this level, the human machine becomes divine at some level. Uh, so I have a just tremendous admiration for uh, athletes, actors. Uh, another one, I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Thomas. I've literally, my body is just shuddered. I mean, I'm almost like crying sitting in an audience when I see uh, Chinese acrobats because I see them doing things that are physically impossible, absolutely physically impossible, but they've transcended it. You know, you got some guy there, he's spinning plates on, you know, two hands and feet while he's, you know, got some, uh, you know, another acrobat, you know, balanced on a stick that's on top of his head on her, on her toe. And they're just completely there. And you're just going, what I'm observing is absolutely physically impossible. And, you know, you, you experience in that moment a state, a momentary state of ineffability. <laughs> you know, you're just like, <laughs> you know, and athletes do it too and actors do it. I wanted to ask you how you extrude this or how you apply this to other areas of your life. And I was thinking initially of family, health, mm -hmm. your general way of being, et cetera. But I'd like to ask you, how do you apply this to challenges when something doesn't go the way you would expect it to go? Yeah. Well, part of the whole thing is not expecting. I know that sounds also absurd, but just I don't have any expectation. But I will tell you where I think your question really applies and where I definitely have a lot of work to do. When I'm sitting in a quiet office in the solitude of my home, and my home is like my sanctuary, very quiet here, peaceful. I meditate for two hours before I even hit the room in the morning, you know, something most people couldn't even imagine. So I'm, by the time I walk in, I'm so grounded in uh, meditation and prayer work that I'm I'm just in the moment. Now, when you meditate and you come out of it, you start lifting out of it. And then, you know, by 10 a.m. or something, I'm just back to my old good human self. And if I'm presented with a challenge, you know, if I'm out uh, walking the dogs, having a conversation with my wife, I'm much less able to be entirely present than I am under the circumstances that we're talking to. So 
you know, I'm able to do these things under some kind of controlled environment. But then in the heat of battle in, uh, for lack of a better term, in life where it's throwing curveballs at you and stuff, I, I immediately regress back to being some lower level of what I am as life delivers, delivers things. But I, I do try to practice non-expectation because I, I try to be in a state of trust. Of course, you go through the day and you have expectations and all you know, stuff that you do. It's just human to do it. But I try and uh, acknowledge on an ongoing basis that I don't really need to do that. And I don't, I'm less getting caught up in it. I think it's important for people to realize, too, that Rob is on the West Coast. Trading for him begins at 6 a.m. So back up two hours from that, you must be a... Uh, getting up in the middle of the night, literally. I'm, I'm up at four. Um, last night, I I woke up at about two thirty, and I got out of bed at about three. So this side of your life, you don't dabble in this, do you? You take this very seriously. It's not. I'm not so sure. It's a matter of uh, serious. Um, I have my wife and I were talking about this yesterday while we were walking the dogs. She feels sometimes that. She goes, I, I can't rise to your standard. And I go, I go, please don't look at it that way. I go, I've made a decision in my life that what I'm doing is I am at least in my ability to do it. And I, I don't say any of these things to say what's right or wrong, but I've just come to a place where I just am practicing. I'm trying to practice the presence of divinity. That's just the place that I am. And I'm absolutely in love with being there. So, you know, I told my wife, you know, she said this a number of times. And I told her yesterday, I go, I go, you are where you are. And that is the perfect place for you right now. And I am where I am. And this is what I'm doing. And that's the right place for me right now. There's no comparing or anything like that. There's no comparing. It's just where I've come to uh, over the years. And I've been, like I said, I've been on a mystic path as long as I've been with her certainly long before. And so she knows, and it's been a interesting ride, you know, from like a career standpoint, because I've never really had a job. There's not any sense of convention in terms of employment or other kinds of activities that most people would do. And I'm very, very grateful that I've been able to lead a life like that, but it hasn't been easy in a lot of ways. It's expensive to live here and all that, these kind of material concerns and things like that. And and so um, I'm just very grateful for it. But I try just to not really have an expectation and operate from that uh, level. I believe, I could be wrong at some level, but I believe that when I'm in that uh, state, when I'm practicing that, that I'm provided for. It is certainly a, a scriptural promise that you are provided for when you are in that place. And this is what I've experienced. Now, I didn't come up with this on my own. I I literally watched my father do it and practice it. And he told me, you know, you're talking about a man that probably said 14 things to me the whole time growing up. You know, he told me that providence, that which you're provided your needs, your supply, he would use the term supply, um, does not come from you. He told me that you do your passion. You do what you're inspired to do, what you love to do and what you're inspired to do. And, uh, the other things will fall in place. And he literally lived that right in front of my face while my mother hated her job and all the other stuff that you know, he talked about. 
So I had those contrasts, not just the the two religious contrasts, but I have a mother that was continuously complaining about her job who lived in a different household. And then when you go over to my father's household, there was nothing but passion about what he was doing. And he lived at a very high level. And the amazing thing too, Thomas, uh, what a delightful man he was. He had so much compassion for other people. And, and it would be almost painful to watch from my material viewpoint at the time. I mean, we'd go in a restaurant at, on Christmas Eve or something, and he would go out of his way. He'd even go back in the kitchen, and he'd give everybody that worked there a $100 bill. Now, back those days, that was some cash. And he, uh, he believed that uh, he was provided for, and so he gave to others. I saw any number of times uh, a woman, uh, you know, her husband would leave her, uh, with no means of employment, no skill set or anything. She's got two kids. And he'd tell me, I, I wouldn't really know, he owned a furniture store. He'd tell me, um, I want you to load up the truck. I want you to go get these things. And I want you to take it over to this address, and I want you to install it. Just like, here's a diagram. I worked for him for about eight years as uh, his uh, delivery guy. And... I'd go over and I'd later find out that this woman's uh, husband had left her and that he just, uh, for, he set her up with an apartment and furnished her home and never told a soul, never told a soul that he had done it. Not one single iota of personal uh, ego in it, just doing these things. That was my role model um, that I observed the, the things that I'm talking about me doing or that you're asking about me doing. I'm, I'm a second generation of that. Possibly third. We've just gone through a little exercise in the trading room that you moderate where you asked people to, uh, on three different occasions, separated from each other, write down their thoughts about money. So write down, just think about money and jot down what comes to mind. And then put that away, put that piece of paper away. Come back 30 minutes, an hour or so later, do it again. Put that piece of paper away and then come back and do it tomorrow. And then combine the list. And then, as you offered in, in this particular environment, for people to send that to you. And there might be some dialogue back and forth. But at least it gives you a perspective of your priorities of money. You're supposed to combine the three lists. I left that out. Combine the three lists and then put what's most important to you from top to bottom. Yeah, pri to prioritize. And, and the specific question that you're asking is, what's important to me about money? That's it. Yeah, what's important to me about money? Do as you said, and, ever, and, and, then, um, and then prioritize once you get about a dozen of them or so. You might uh, suddenly realize, oh, well, I forgot this. And then you add that in there. Now, what that does, th this is an exercise well, actually, it's an exercise in something really profound, but it's an exercise in self-knowledge and awareness. And, and the reason I did it with money is because a lot of people uh, motivate their lives around money. It's like, you know, okay, well, why do you get up in the morning? Well, I got to go to my job. Well, why are you doing that? Well, because I need money. Well, why do you need money? Well, because I got to pay the bills. Well, why do you got to pay the bills? Well, because, because they'll turn off the power if I don't, you know. Well, why will they turn on the power? You know, you know, on and on. You just keep going down, 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 down until you get you know, down to nothing, right? But then what I would ask uh, the individual is whatever that number one priority is, I would ask them, well, let, you know, let's say it's freedom. 
so the, the guy says, well, you know, what's the number one thing uh, that's important to you about money? You'll notice, by the way, that what we're really talking about is your values. What sits on top of values? Your beliefs. What sits on top of beliefs? Your attitudes. What sits on top of your attitudes? Your actions. You know, this is four levels down into the matrix from which your behavior comes. So, you know, I got you in this place. So I ask you, oh, freedom. Hey, when you think of freedom about, you know, money, uh, do you have a picture in your mind? Is something that comes to mind about that? Is there some event in your life that describes freedom to you? Well, what are we doing now? Well, we're now opening a door for what symbolically, because the, the unconscious mind works in symbols. You know, this is why stories are a wonderful way to convey ideas, you know, metaphors and stories and tales and uh, myths or whatever. So I'm leading the individual into a, their own mythical world or their own story that their mental constructs are made of. And so I'm taking them on an exploration in that, in that land, in that place, and then exploring questions about, well, are you moving away from something that's negative or are you moving towards something that's positive in your life? Because generally good things in life are moving towards something that you want and not away from something that you don't. You know, moving away from something that you don't is kind of misguided. It's like a ship with no rudder. Let's just, let's just get away from the hurricane. doesn't matter which way we go. Okay, well, where are we now? But when you have plotted out a course, you know that you are um, on the path or you're off the path and you can get back on, then you, then you can start navigating the plan. Anyways, hopefully that kind of addresses that question. You work in the world of money, financial markets, taking money away from the financial markets, hopefully a few times a day. What is your perspective? What have you created for yourself around money? Well, you know, I'm sure it's not that difficult to figure out that I don't really prioritize particularly high on money. Me, money is an effect. It's not a cause. I've had the wonderful opportunity of... uh getting into situations in my career or business endeavors that have made it possible for me to have a lot of choices about how I uh, live my life. And not, not tremendous, huge, gargantuan amounts of, of money, but enough to um, make things comfortable. And so, and that's happened several times. Now, you know, because you're in the room, you know, what do I call it? I call it waiting for a good accident to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know it's not an accident because if I do uh, what I'm passionate about and what I'm inspired about, and believe me, Thomas, I've gone for period, I've gone for as many as seven years without making anything, which to most people is just unimaginable that you could continue doing what you're doing and not make enough to pay the bills for seven years. That's a number of years ago. I've waxed and waned off the path. Uh, but what did I do? Well, I love what I do so much that I do it even though I didn't get paid, right? And most people, you know, if you go ask Richard Branson, you know, or people, you know, what do you love doing? You know, like, you know, Donald Trump, well, you know, what's he gone bankrupt 11 times or something? What's he do? He keeps doing real estate deals because that's what he loves to do and become a billionaire, you know, 11 times or something. And so what an interesting thought. Try to put together a deal if he got paid or not. You know, I mean, probably not really, but what I'm saying is you just keep doing what you love and, and then it comes. Yeah. 
There's one more question I want to ask about the trading, and then we'll go into the we'll roll over into the next podcast and have a really fun little lightning round like what uh, Jim Cramer does on CNBC. All right. So here's the last question for this one, or the last topic for this one is a, a guy described trading like hitting a golf ball. You launch the thing up into the air, and you have no idea where it's going to land. Now, some people do have an idea where it's going to land. Most people might say they don't have an idea where it's going to land. So that evokes fear. You deal with coaching people around managing the emotion of fear. How do you do that? Oh, wow. Um, Well, we've been uh, talking so, so far about being in various states of consciousness holding yourself at a certain state or getting yourself towards a certain state that's manageable within a context, right? Fear is actually like a, a state interference pattern, but it's, it's got a, uh, it's got a function in your life. It's that thing that helps you jump out from the, in front of the moving bus that you're seeing in your your peripheral vision or whatever. Fear is different in humans than than in other uh, animals because humans have a conscious awareness. In other words, they're aware of themselves. What will happen for most uh, animals is if they go into a state of fear, you know, it's like the antelope on the, you know, you'll see it on the more animal channels. Okay, the antelope's, you know, grazing and his head pops up and, you know, sure enough, there's a lion at the edge of the field or the savannah or whatever. And then the lion comes out and he's going to pick the weakest one because the lions are a little bit lazy. You know, he's going to pick the weakest one in the, in the herd and chases it, you know, and hopefully can bring it down. The, the other lions are coming along with it. You know. Maybe they chase it for a while and, and give up because it's just not worth it. Okay, pick the wrong weakling this time. You know, we'll find another one a little bit later. Let's go bask in the sun for a while. That antelope within several minutes after this life-threatening chase, they'll just put its head back down and start grazing again. Just done with it. Human? No, they're not going to let that one go. They're going to latch on. Oh, man, that lion chased me. Go tell the friends. Oh, the friends are like, oh, man, I can't believe you were being chased by a lion. Then they get a whole group of people together substantiate, you know, substantiating the fear and the risk and the, oh, man, it was a life-threatening situation. And the whole community is now basking in this, Condition of the past. Antelope's grazing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just back to my day. Uh, you know, that was business as usual, you know, just back to my day. And, you know, the neural pathways that um, are transferring this information are non-directional uh, pathways. Either the neural pathway is lit up or it's not. It's digital. So either either you're in a state of fear or you're not. And the, the pathway not only uh, doesn't know the direction, in, in other words, it doesn't know if that fear is uh, coming from an internal state or an external state. Now, for the antelope, it's an external state. I don't know what antelopes really think, but in all likelihood, antelopes do not stand around imagining being chased by lions and have themselves in a state of total anxiety. But, you know, the humans there, you know, with a bunch of friends substantiating this uh, thing as a reality and so it becomes a reality. And so the individual creates literally a mental program for the experience of fear where perhaps none exists. 
and it's probably the only animal on the planet, you know, a human, probably the only one that, uh, that does that. This kind of thing that I'm talking about, meditating for two hours before I even come into the office, has me in a really grounded state. And so if an internal state of fear were to try to come rising up through that state of peace, I uh, probably wouldn't be able to do it. But then, as I was describing earlier, as the day progresses, maybe not so good. I got to go back and do, you know, get it, get grounded again. And so such is the case for, uh, for trading. You learn that you're essentially in a life-threatening situation when you click the button and enter a trade. Some guys are so bad that they can't even click the button in the first place. They're literally in a panic state before they click the button. This is so common. It's so common and it's so disabling that individuals have a passion about trading. They're taking the time to do the work and, and learn the patterns and the things that, that might be a, an edge or an advantage in the place. And then the fear enters uh, in all three tenses. It enters uh, in the past tense. It enters in the present tense and it enters in the future tense. Fear as a future event is uh, generally, uh, I work with some people who might use a different term, but generally speaking, future tense of fear is, is the state of anxiety, fear of the future. A state in the past is fear. And if you're in absolute present tense, fear doesn't exist because fear is a cause and effect relationship. So to the degree that you can maintain that, you're okay. And so this is what I try uh, to work with people on. Now, there are some methods that I use for clearing essentially the emotions on the lower energy scales. What are these? You know, fear, anger, apathy, grief. These are the major negative emotions that, uh, that come bubbling up. And so if you are having the fear um, before you even enter a trade, then you are entertaining a reality of a threat just simply by thinking about trading, as I just said. And then a lot of guys, when they click the button, it starts there, and then they have trouble managing the trade. They can't stay in it. You just got to get out, got to get out. And, of course, that's a losing formula because you're not in the moment. And then the third one, and it's probably the least of them because if you can manage to uh, some intelligent level, uh, but the third one is just to be able to hold a trade out to its completion and, more specifically, to its most optimal completion. If you can do all three of those, then you've operated in the present tense through the entire process. But I try, there's two ways that I essentially, well, actually probably three ways. One is to work with people just towards clearing the historical memory of the fear state. This is learned fear, not the kind of being chased by a line, but the kind that you've learned through probably trading um, without knowledge. One of the things that I try to do is to teach people from a statistical standpoint and to tell them there are certain probabilities associated with certain events. And after experiencing that for a certain number of times, then they rationally are able to come to the conclusion that it is the correct decision to have entered the trade. And so a lot of guys can find their way with that, but some guys can't uh, find their way with that. We might uh, go in and clear the major negative emotions so that they don't have it bubbling up as a pre-event. And um, that's a certain um, process that I use um, through a process of the timeline, uh, working with people on their timeline and the way they store their memories. Those are the two major ways that I'll uh, work with people. But 
I, I kind of prefer that they get there through knowledge because if they have their knowledge, then they learn their lines, they learn their character. And then, you know, if you can get into some kind of present moment thing while they're actually doing the trade, then, then they're able to function within that. And they've got it back by knowledge because knowledge can lead to conviction. It won't lead to inspiration um, directly, but it can. And so that path works. Now, in part three of our series, in episode number 97, we're going to just pull the covers off and have some fun. We're going to do the lightning round, where we just go rapid fire with one topic after another. So Rob is going to tackle things like his thoughts on the current, quote, New Age movement, kinesiology, muscle testing, and even how he programmed himself not to age. That's right. We'll see you in the next podcast. And by the way, if this podcast has meant something to you or this series means something to you, leave a donation. You can simply go to subconsciousmindmastery.com forward slash donation and click a button. It's that simple. We will see you for the conclusion of this series and podcast number 97. And between here and there, enjoy the journey. The opinions on this podcast are those of the host based on personal experience only and are not intended as medical or psychological advice. If you are experiencing symptoms that require professional treatment, please contact a licensed medical practitioner. The stories and opinions expressed on this podcast are independently those of the host and guests and are not intended to be taken as medical advice or to replace medical care from a licensed professional when appropriate.